Okay, let's start by reviewing where we were last week. We're still talking about the English Reformation. We'll talk, we talked about, about the English Reformation last week. We'll talk about it this week, and we're going to talk about it next week as well. And you're probably asking yourself, why so much time on the English Reformation? Ah, great. And the reason is really simple, because the English Reformation has the greatest impact on us in North America today. In fact, the English Reformation, if you think of the, of the Reformation as a tide going in, it reached its high water mark in the English Reformation by the 1660s, and almost 50 years after the Reformation began. And uh, the influence of the English Reformation has produced a modern capitalism, the modern scientific revolution, and political freedom as we know it today. So we're really thankful for the influence that the Bible had on the English Reformation and has it got and as it got exported to us in North America. This little chart I have up here, it's just a short history of what we talked about last week. So in 1509, Henry VIII took the throne of England. In 1517, eight years later, the Reformation began in England, excuse me, in Germany with Martin Luther. In 1534, Henry VIII broke with Rome. Now, why did he break with Rome? Well, he was a lecher. And, you know, here, here's a situation where we're really thankful that God used evil for good. I think I mentioned last week, when I grew up as a Roman Catholic, I, I was taught to just say, well, of course the Protestants are evil and from the devil. Look at Henry VIII. He broke from the church because he, he wanted to have sex with another woman, and basically that was the issue. He was married to his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, I think was her name, and she did not produce a son for him. That was part of the issue. The other, he wanted to divorce her. The other issue was he just was sexually interested in another woman. And so he went to the Pope and said, I want a divorce. And the Pope said, no, you can't have a divorce. Uh, you don't have grounds for a divorce. So Henry said to the, uh, the Pope and the Church of Rome, take a hike. And he took the English church and just broke from Rome and formed his own church with fundamentally himself as the Pope. Now, this is bad. Henry was a bad guy. I mentioned last week that he put to death about 50,000 people in all kinds of gruesome ways, kind of like Hamas has been doing in recent weeks, because they were political impediments to him. But here we have God using evil for good, because the English Reformation brought tremendous good to the world. And this should give us great hope as we look at the mess this country is in right now and the political leadership we have right now. And we can hope and trust that God will bring good out of evil. Okay, so there's Henry. I've spent too much time on Henry. Uh, Tyndale, who translated the Bible into English for the first, first time from the original manuscripts, second translation, but Tyndale translated from the original Greek, which Wycliffe didn't do, was martyred two years later. In 1547, Henry died, and his son Edward VI, the boy king, he was aged nine years of age, became king and died when he was roughly 15 or 16. During Edward's reign, as we mentioned last week, now Henry broke from the Catholic Church, so basically it was still a Catholic church in everything but name only. It was Protestant in the sense they broke from Rome, but the, the theology wasn't changed much, nor was the worship patterns changed. But with Edward, his son, the men that were advising Edward were all reformed and were connected to Geneva, and so for the first time, the English state church begins to really move towards the Reformation. He dies in 1553, and his half-sister, Mary I, reigns. She's called Bloody Mary because she burnt 
somewhere between two and 500 Protestants at the stake during her reign. As I mentioned last week, again, the issues are complicated because as a person, she was a pretty good person. Uh, but she was Catholic, and her mom was Catholic. Her mom was the, uh, Henry's first wife, and Henry had treated her mom bad, and her mom never left the Catholic Church. She was raised by her mother. Henry treats her mom bad. Henry breaks from the church at Rome. Mary has a vendetta against the Protestants, and she wants to bring the English church back to Catholicism. Well, she reigns for five years. During that period of time, the Marian exile, a whole bunch of the Protestant leaders under Edward VI flee to Geneva and the continent where they are in hiding for five years. Okay, then we go to... Uh, Mary dies, thank goodness, after five years, and from 1558 to 1603, a long period, 40, what do we have there, 45 years almost, Elizabeth I reigns. Now, Elizabeth, these, all, these are all half-siblings. Edward was the, the son of Henry, Mary was a daughter of Henry, and Elizabeth was a daughter of Henry, all from different wives, so they're all half-brothers and sisters. Elizabeth establishes the halfway settlement. It's, she's, the English culture has been ricocheting back and forth from Protestantism to Catholicism. It's been a ter terribly tumultuous time for the people. And Elizabeth is a peacemaker, so she decides to have a situation where they're going to have a church that's in the middle between the Catholics and the Protestants. Call, and that's the Anglican church today. It's called the halfway settlement. Well, that produced all kinds of problems. So six years into her reign, the word Puritanism is used for the first time. The Puritans were members of the Church of England who didn't like the halfway settlement. They said, no, we're being unfaithful to God. We're only going halfway with the Bible, which was true. And we're just seeking peace at the, at the expense of expedience. I mean, we're just going to make life easy and have, be peaceful. We're not going to really serve God. So they wanted to purify the Anglican Church of the, what they called its popish Catholic influences. And that term is first used in 1564. It's a negative term. It's a pejorative term. And we're going to see the Puritans and then from 1564 really till 1660, 100-year period, they dominate English culture completely. And uh, 1570s, Thomas Cartwright is the first one to suggest Presbyterianism. We talked about him last week. Thomas, this is very important because up to this point in time, the queen of the king controlled all the bishops who controlled all the people. So the king controlled the church. The crown controlled the church. But with Thomas Cartwright, is the first one to suggest that the church be separate from and independent from the political control of the state. This is, we say today, yeah, so what? Well, at this point in time, this was a huge issue because this was not done anywhere. And so Cartwright's Presbyterianism, Cartwright said, no, that we want freedom of conscience. We want liberty of conscience. We want the church to pick its own leaders. We want the elders of the presbyters in a local church to govern the church. And we want those elders or presbyters to pick their own pastors. And then we want those presbyters to meet together, the presbyters from each church to meet together to kind of, and to govern themselves. So we don't want the state controlling us. So, of course, Elizabeth says the famous statement, no bishops, no queen. In other words, if I can't rule the church through the bishops, then I've lost all my political power, which wasn't true, but that's what she thought. And so she went right after Thomas Cartwright. He had to flee to the continent to keep from being hung by the neck or burned at the stake. But we're going to see that Cartwright's ideas have long-time, big-time influence. 
I put in here also, this is the, area of, the era of Francis Drake, one of my favorite guys. If you want to read a really fun biography, get a good biography of Francis Drake. He was a Puritan. He was basically a pirate. He was called a privateer. He's the first Englishman to circumnavigate the globe. Every morning he began the day by reading the Bible for two hours. Okay, and he hated the Roman Catholics because he was a Puritan, he was, he was Protestant. And so he made it, at this point, England does not have a navy. They had what were called privateers instead. So a privateer was someone that the queen or king would hire to do their work, but they, were, they did not have an official navy. And so Francis Drake was a privateer. And he went out and prayed on Spanish shipping all over the, over the Caribbean. The Spanish absolutely hated him. He was a terror to the Spanish. But Francis Drake, he became Queen Elizabeth, one of her favorite people, because he, he made her really rich. He would go into the Caribbean and uh, attack the Spanish shipments of gold coming from the Caribbean to Spain. Remember Peru and the Incas and all that sort of stuff? Drake would attack the shipping, take all the silver gold, bring it back. He got a third, and the queen got two-thirds. And, but Francis Drake was motivated above all things for the glory of God. That was the main thing that drove him. It wasn't money. He's a really interesting guy. And his crews absolutely loved him because he treated them really well. Well, then we have the defeat of the Spanish Armada in 1588 during Elizabeth's reign. And lastly, I want to mention, I didn't mention this lastly, but this is very important to understand the context. In 1593, the queen hung two men Greenwood and Barrow were hung, at the, hung by the neck until dead. What was their crime? Their crime was simply this. They met in a church congregation separate from the Church of England. That was a capital offense in 1590. Just imagine this for a second. I'm, I'm telling you this story so you can have, have a, in your mind a framework as we look forward now to the next 60 years of the English Reformation. These guys are hung at the neck. Their only crime was, first they were thrown in the Tower of London, which was the prison in, in London, where they languished for a year or so in horrible conditions. And then they were tried and hung. Their crime, they wanted to have a meet as a congregation apart from their Church of England. They weren't heretics theologically. They were very... Uh, uh, faithful to the Bible and Christian doctrine but that was their crime. So this is the environment that we're dealing with, okay? So that's a little summary of where we've been. Let's move forward to England in 1600. Total population of England at this point is about three million people, about half the population of the state of Washington. So it's mostly woods. Most of England at this point in time is yeah, there's, there's dirt roads throughout England, farms here and there, but it's mostly a big wooded area. Think Robin Hood in the old days, although Robin Hood was 400 years prior to this. And here's a map that we have. Thank you. Are you running up from the back? Thanks. Okay. Here we have a map. We have, I put this up here because here we have London, and here we have Oxford to the west of London, and to the northeast is Cambridge. This is important because as we move forward, Oxford is going to become the headquarters of the royalists. Basically, it's people that are sympathetic with Catholicism live, if we drew a line from here right up through Cambridge, this area, southeastern England, is, where, is the Puritan headquarters. And Cambridge is the headquarters of Puritan theology. Oxford is more the headquarters of Catholic Anglican theology and life. And England's going to divide it and have a civil war 
It's not over religion, basically, but most of the support for the Puritans is going to come from this part of England. So, and interestingly, this is where Wycliffe had his greatest support. Remember in 1385, Wycliffe translated the Bible into English, but from the Latin Vulgate, and then when he died, he had his followers called Lollards, who went about, they had little scraps of paper where they would write out, because there was no printing presses, and they would write out by hand sections of the Bible, and they would travel through England and preach. And where did they have their greatest influence? This part of England. Okay, at this point in time, London is the, is the world's largest city. It's a pop 250, 300,000 people. It's the biggest city in Europe. Um, and uh, Oliver Cromwell is born in 1599. He's gonna become a very important figure for us moving forward. Just, I just want you to think, Queen Elizabeth dies 1603. Oliver Cromwell is born in 1599, and Charles I is born in 1600. So Charles I and Oliver Cromwell are three or four years old when Queen Elizabeth dies. They're gonna become very, very important figures as we move forward in English history. So I just wanted to, wanted to kind of introduce that at this point in time. And this takes us to James I, who, we've got, there he is. James I, who succeeded Elizabeth. The first. Now, Jane, Elizabeth dies childless. She was the virgin queen. We really don't know if she was a virgin, but she was called the virgin queen. She never married and she never had children. Although there's a rumor that she had a, an, a child, but uh, out of wedlock, but it's just a rumor. It's not known for sure. But here's a picture of James I. James was the king of Scotland, and he was the next heir to the English throne. So when Elizabeth died, James made the long journey south from Scotland to London to assume the crown of England, and now he's the king both of England and of Scotland. And he's also the king of Ireland, because at this point, Ireland is under their influence, and we know all the problems that ha between Ulsterland today and Ireland, and the Irish were caused by James I, who did the first plantation in Ulsterland. He sent English, because he was the king of Ireland too, he sent a bunch of Englishmen, I think mostly Scotsmen, to Ulsterland to, to form an English plantation there. So he started that whole mess, at any rate, and he's the one that had the King James Bible produced. He was, the important thing to know about James is that he wrote a book called Basilicon Doron. It's Latin, it just means the royal gift, arguing for the divine right of kings to have absolute authority. The divine right of kings. How many of you have heard that expression before? Okay, this is really, this is the source now of the conflict that's going to end up in a, cause a civil war in England. Because the Puritans who are gaining an influence are opposed to the divine right of kings. And the reason for that is that England had a kind of half-written constitution. England really doesn't have a written constitution, but they have Magna Carta, which goes back to the 1200s. And under Magna Carta, the king agreed to share his power with parliament. I'm simplifying the issue here, but the king under Magna Carta agreed, I will not raise taxes on my subjects unless parliament gathers and agrees to raise those taxes. So the king didn't have power to raise taxes. He had to raise taxes through parliament. And in other words, the king is sharing his power with parliament. And uh, under this book, written by King James, Basilicon Doron, he disagreed with that violently. Okay, so we have a long 400-year history now of Parliament and the king sharing authority, and the K King James disagrees with that. In fact, James resented Parliament, whom he saw as a competing authority. 
The Puritan Samuel Rutherford, any of you heard of Samuel Rutherford? Do you have? Great. A, f- a couple decades later, is going to respond to King James with the book Lex Rex, a very, very important book in political history. Lex Rex is Latin, it means the law is king. Lex, law, rex, king. And it was an argument for the rule of law, not for the rule of monarchs. And we, the Democrats in the press today, are always saying, of the Republicans that were violating the rule of law. This tradition goes back to Lex Rex in the 17th century, that we're not gonna be ruled by kings or monarchs. Well, yeah, we'll have a king or a monarch, but fundamentally the whole realm will be ruled by law, and everybody will be subject to the same law. That comes from the idea in the Bible that all of us, kings and heart surgeons, and school janitors, no matter what our status in life is, no matter what our gifts and abilities, all are going to stand equal before the judgment seat of Christ someday and give an accounting for our lives. In other words, we're all under the same divine laws and rules. And so that, that idea has huge political consequences, and it had consequences for the Puritans and for King James. Puritanism, fortified by great preaching, meanwhile, is increasingly penetrating the English state, the English church, and English culture. As I mentioned earlier, it was the high tide of the Reformation, Puritanism was. Preaching to these people, to the congregations, was so important that the, the Puritan parishes paid lectures to preach to them throughout the week. These people were poor, they didn't have much money, like we do today, and, uh, but the people loved good preaching. The English people did. And so in congregations, about a fifth of the congregations were pastored by a Puritan. The Puritans are all Anglicans, but they were Puritans in the sense that they had this agreement that they wanted to purify the church. So Puritanism was never a denomination, it was a movement, it was an intellectual movement within the church. But the Puritans were great preachers and very orthodox in their preaching, and God used them greatly through their preaching to have a huge, huge influence on English society and English culture. In fact, J.I. Packer says the Puritan family, from this point forward, became the model for the English people. We want families like the Puritans had, is the general idea. Just like in Germany, Martin Luther's marriage to his wife, Katie, became the pattern for the family in Germany for the next 400 years. So it was with the Puritans. With the Puritan biblical emphasis came the principles that would be the seedbed of modernity. I'll just mention a few here. Each, the first one is this, each individual, because he or she is made in God's image, is sacred. Okay, sacred. That's really important, but prior to the Bible coming, the Bible coming front and center in culture, and people reading the Bible, and the Bible beginning to influence culture big time, that idea was in the background. The second idea is subsidiarity, and that's just a really big word. It just means this that the best government is government at the lowest level. So our society works best when each individual governs himself. Then society works best when the families govern themselves. In other words, they don't need much outside government. Political government, civil government is small because it's not needed because people govern themselves, families govern themselves, and churches govern themselves. That's subsidiarity. The opposite would be a massive state like we have today and chaos at the individual level, okay? But the idea that came with the Bible was subsidiarity. Thirdly, freedom of conscience. We so take this for granted today, but in the 17th century and for a thousand years prior to this, 
there really was no freedom of conscience. I mentioned the two pastors that were hung at the neck because they just wanted to have a church outside the, the Church of England. No freedom of conscience. Fourthly, rights are given to each individual by God. The rights are not given to us by the government. God gives us our rights. And this came from the Puritans in the 17th century, specifically from a man named John Wilburn. Show us a, a picture up there of Wilburn, would you please? Can I control it here? Yeah, there we are. There's a painting of Wilburn. Now, you've probably never heard of John Wilburn, but John Wilburn, even, even today, is quoted in Supreme Court decisions. He was called Freeborn John by the Puritans. Why was he called Freeborn John? Because he believed that all of our freedoms were inherent to us by birth and were given to us by God, not by the state. This is where this idea comes from. We hear all the time today, Christians, if you read many blog posts, political blog posts, today, you hear people arguing, no, the state does not give us our rights. God gives us our rights. The Declaration of Independence tells, starts out by saying that our rights are, uh, what's the word, not inherent, but uh, in, inalienable rights, which means they're not given to us by the state, they're given to us by God. Thanks, Nick, I need you in the front row. Um, and the, the next concept is limited government, which was a foreign concept throughout the medieval world. And lastly, submission of everyone, including the king, to the same rule of law. In other words, if the state, if parliament passes a law, the king is not exempt from that law. Let's say the parliament passes a law about marriage and the king wants to just, to forbids divorce. This isn't the case, but let's just assume it for a second. The king's not free to ignore that law and divorce anybody he wants. He's under the same laws as the people are. That's the rule of law. That's the great protection of our freedoms today. And the rule of law is crumbling and collapsing in our culture. As I'm speaking, where does the rule of law come from? It came from the 17th century Puritans and Lex Rex. Okay, and so to the degree that the Bible uh, ascends in our culture, has more influence in our culture, we will see all of these same principles restored in our culture. So we need to be in prayer. Increasingly, Parliament was controlled by successful, wealthy Puritan farmers and small businessmen. So we, by the time we get to the 1620s, that's 80% Parliament is made up of 80% Puritans. And this brings us to Thomas Cartwright, which we mentioned a few moments ago. Uh, picture of Cartwright there, a painting of Cartwright, who died in 1603. Uh, no, he died, yeah, he died in 1603, the year Elizabeth died. Who Elizabeth persecuted him. Remember we mentioned earlier he started Presbyterianism and Elizabeth drove him to the continent and eventually he was thrown in the Tower of London where he, his health was broken and he died. But he died in the same year with Elizabeth. These men paid an incredible price for their convictions. He died in 1603 not knowing the effect of his life's work, but his Presbyterian ideas, the idea of a state, of a church not controlled by the state, grew amongst the Puritan leaders. And although Presbyterianism was never adopted as the official Anglican church polity, it was the preferred form of church government for most Puritans. It must be me hitting my pocket, huh? Yeah, sorry. Uh, it was the preferred form of government for most Puritans. In fact, the Puritan, the Westminster Confession of Faith was done in the 1640s by the Puritans which included a Presbyterian polity, but before it could be enacted, 
the English king came back into power and Presbyterianism disappeared. I'll come back to that next week. But it took firm root in, in Scotland and came from Scotland to the United States. So prevalent was Presbyterianism in the United States at the time of the American Revolution that the English king called the American Revolution the Presbyterian War. You probably didn't know that because the Presbyterians in the United States and in the 13 colonies was kind of the dominant religion in terms of politics. And at that time, Princeton College was the headquarters of Presbyterianism, and there was a man named Witherspoon there who was a Scotch Presbyterian who ran the college, who trained about half the people of the Constitutional Convention were trained by Witherspoon, who was the successor to Jonathan Edwards, and I can't go any further on that. But in fact, the English crown, as I mentioned, called it the Presbyterian War. Influenced by Thomas Cartwright and John Knox, who we'll talk about in a week or two, the Puritans increasingly petitioned James I and his son Charles I for liberty of conscience and greater local church autonomy. During James' time, 1607, Jamestown was founded in Virginia. So it's called Jamestown after King James, obviously. And also, during this time, another thing that occurred in James' rule was the Synod of Dort. How many of you have heard of the Synod of Dort? It takes place in Holland. And the Synod of Dort was a further def def theological defining of the theology of the Reformation. And for the first time, we have the word Arminian as an opposite to a Calvinist. At this point, all the Reformers are what today we would call a Calvinist, although Calvinism would have never wanted his name used for a movement, and they were more Calvinistic than Calvin was. Uh, but for the first time, we have the opposite appearance, which is Arminianism, and then we have the, at that point, 1618, the five points of Calvinism appear and the five points of Arminianism. We don't want to spend a lot of time on that, but just to let you know that's taking place during James' reign. And that takes us to the Mayflower, because during the last few years of James' reign, the Mayflower pilgrims, Headed for the New World, 1620. Oh, I could spend a whole session on the Mayflower. It's one of my favorite subjects. But there's Thomas Cartwright. And here are the, here's a painting by, oops, not working. Can you get the painting by Andrew Wyeth? Yeah. Of the Thanksgiving by Andrew Wyeth. I want you to notice it's a famous painting. It's, I think, hanging in the Capitol building in New England. Did you know? Anyway, notice the bright colors. We think of the Puritans, you know, the pilgrims as these dour-looking people in black clothing, black hoods over their heads, kind of like Muslim terrorists. And nothing was further from the truth. This is pretty much how they dressed, bright colors. Uh, yeah, they had the little black pointy hats, but that was just what everybody wore in those days. So, but the, but the Mayflower sails for New England. Charles the first. His father dies, and James dies in 1625, and Charles I, his youngest son, takes the throne because the older son had died. And uh, so we need a picture painting of Charles. There he is. Charles was a complicated individual, just like his father. Unwisely, during Charles' reign, the crown responded by tightening the screws of control on the Puritans and the church. And ultimately, this is going to end in a civil war. Now, Charles, Charles was like Mary the Bloody Mary. He's one of the only English kings that was not a sexual lecher. 
He was faithful to his wife. He attended to his children, which was really rare in those days for any monarch to be this way. I mean, in other words, he was not promiscuous at all. He was a, a strong Christian. He was an Arminian Christian, and this member, that's why I brought up the Senator Dort to let you know that this idea is appearing now. He was, but he was passionately believed in the divine right of kings because his father raised him this way. And so he believed that it was a religious truth that he needed to cling to. He believed in it by conscience. It was a matter of conscience for him. Uh, after he died, he was beheaded by the Puritans, and we'll come back to that next week. But after he died, the English people, the, several, they made a martyr out of him and with, with some truth because he was a good guy. He was a, sincere, he was a good person in his personal life. But he believed in the divine right of kings, and he believed in controlling of the situation. So, four years into his reign, in 1629, he called a parliament to raise some taxes. Parliament didn't do what he wanted, so he just dismissed parliament. The king would call parliament and dismiss parliament when he needed money. He dismissed parliament, and he didn't raise, call another parliament for 11 years. He attempted to rule England without parliament because he believed in the divine right of kings. Meanwhile, Parliament is becoming increasingly Puritan. And as I mentioned, by the time we get to this period, 1620 to 1629 to 1640, that 11-year period, Charles rules without Parliament. Frustrated by his inability to control a Puritan-dominated Parliament, Charles just refused to call Parliament. I'll do it my own way. And then in 1630, remember the Mayflower came in 1620 to the New World. Mayflower the people that got off the boat from the Mayflower were about 100 people that settled Plymouth. Half of them were Christians, and they were the saints, and half of them were what the saints called strangers. They were non-Christians. They were guys that, that came with the Mayflower. So they weren't, all, they weren't all pilgrim Puritan Christians. They were half and half. The first winter, half of them died, reducing the number to about 50. Now we have a mixture of saints and strangers. They intermarry with each other because they pretty much have to marry. And that little group of 50 clings to Plymouth, Massachusetts, to the coast, all by themselves for 10 years. And they gradually grow. They get their numbers grow to about 100. And uh, I mean, it's miserable. They have a miserable existence. Little one-room huts with dirt floors and cloth doors over the front and a hole in the roof for a chimney, smoke coming out. If you've ever been, to, ever been to Plymouth and been there and gone to, they have a, a village replicated there of what it was like. It was miserable, but they survived. And they survived much better than the people in Jamestown were surviving, which was settled earlier. The death rate in Jamestown was like 80%. In, in, uh, for the Mayflower Pilgrims, the first year, they had 50% death just from disease, the first spring, winter and spring. But after that, they stayed pretty healthy and they grew. So the, the Puritans in England were increasingly persecuted by Charles I. And so we get to 1630, 10 years has gone by since the Mayflower has gone to the New World, and the pilgrims in New England are saying, hey, this little group of people, they're surviving. They're not being decimated by disease. They're not very large, but they've, they've found a way to uh, grow corn and grow food. And, and so, at Cambridge, of course, where the Puritans were, there was a big gathering of leaders, and a man named John Winthrop organized a whole bunch of Puritans to flee England and go to the New World. 
So in 1630, 10 years later, a thousand Puritans on 11 different ships take the migration across the ocean. It's been the beginning of what's called the Great Migration, which continues to 1640 for 10 years. And each year, about a thousand, thank you. Boy, you're one step ahead of me, I appreciate it. About, that's a little a print of the ship sailing into Boston Harbor. So for 10 years, each summer, about a thousand, 10 or 11 or 12 ships would sail with about a thousand people. And over that 10 year period, 10,000 people came to New England, all to Boston Harbor, which is just about 20 miles north of, of Plymouth. And this culture begins to thrive. Now, when the Jamestown group did not thrive. And the reason they did not thrive was they were mostly all single men going to Jamestown to make their fortune. But the Puritans were families, husbands, wives, and children that came together, and they did not come to make money. They came for religious freedom. They came for freedom of conscience because freedom of conscience was being denied to them in England. And so they were setting out to, to create a city on a hill, was the phrase they used, in New England, which would a culture or a community of people that would glorify God. It could worship God freely as they wanted to worship God. And so they came, and they were very successful. They were economically successful. The death rate was very low. They immediately organized themselves and um, uh, developed a, a civil polity, civil law, that, and chose leaders and governed themselves. And they were successful where Jamestown was very unsuccessful. And again, the reason was religious motivation. Here we have again the Bible at work. Okay, and then, of course, the Puritans didn't do everything right. We have the Salem witch trials, which came later. So everything wasn't peaches and cream, but basically it was a success. The Great Migration, mostly from southeastern England where the Puritan stronghold was. That brings us to 1633, three years after the Great Migration. Charles is clamping the screws down on the English people, and then he appoints a man named William Laud, to be the Archbishop of Canterbury. We've got a, we've got a, a painting there of Laud. Yeah, there he is, Archbishop Laud. Appointed by Charles I to control the Puritans, to rein in the Puritans. His weapon was the Star Chamber. And have you heard of the Star Chamber? It was a court that the English had at this point in time. It was kind of similar to the Spanish Inquisition. It has that kind of, has that kind of reputation the Star Chamber does. So they began to persecute people, and they picked out several people that were members of parliament that were Puritans, and the king brought, the, William Laud brought them in and tried them in the star chamber, and because they wouldn't recant of their beliefs, they cut their nose off, cut their ears off. This is the first punishment, cut the nose off, cut the ears off, let them go. If they don't recant, then they come back and they cut what's left of the nose and their ear off, and then they would brand them with big brands on their cheeks. SD, sores of SS, sores of sedition. And if that didn't work, then they were thrown in the Tower of London, and if that didn't work, they were hung by the neck till they were dead. This was William Laud, and the Puritans hated William Laud. There was, and this, of course, so here, here's the Puritans growing with this love of liberty and the rule of law and all these things that proceed from the Bible, and here's Charles I clamping down, clamping down, clamping down, persecuting more and more. And so this is bringing us to major conflict. Laud was pro-bishop, whereas the Puritans were pro-Presbyterianism. He was an Arminian. He hated Calvinism. All the Puritans were Calvinists. He was all about high church smells and bells, in other words, Catholic forms of worship, 
Puritans were against that. He supported a nationally uniform church where everybody read out of the same prayer book every Sunday. The Puritans know they wanted freedom of conscience. They wanted the freedom to have their own congregations, maybe separate from the Church of England. Remember what a radical idea this is. Now, remember the, the, a couple decades before this, they're hanging people by the neck just, just for proposing that idea. And uh, William Laud used the Star Chamber to persecute the Puritans like John Pym and, and Lilburn, who I, we mentioned earlier, Freeborn, Freeborn John that I mentioned to you. He got his ears cut off and his nose cut off in the, by the Star Chamber. So, uh, and these guys go back to Parliament and serve in Parliament with their nose and their ears cut off and SS branded on their cheeks and they're like heroes. They're martyrs for the faith, okay? Remember, so we got this incredible conflict coming in. Out of this conflict is gonna come the birth of the modern world. And behind it all is the Bible. 1639 through 1640, remember now Charles hasn't called a Parliament for 10 years. He can't raise, do anything to increase taxes, but he gets into a war and he's forced to call Parliament. And 16th, it's called the Bishops' War. Charles is determined to impose bishops on the Scottish Presbyterian Church. Uh, the Scottish Presbyterians are very, very independent. They do not want to be governed by bishops. Uh, John Knox has come to Scotland and established the Scottish Church, and we'll talk about Knox in a couple of weeks. And uh, the Scottish people, uh-uh, the English government is not going to control us, even though James I, remember, was king of Scotland and England and Ireland, and his son Charles, I think, had the same uh, titles. So Charles thinks he's going to go to Scotland and impose Episcopalianism, ruled by bishops on the Scottish people. A group of Scotsmen signed in 1638 what they called the National Covenant, agreeing to oppose episcopacy. That's ruled by bishops. They were called covenanters. They were fiercely independent, and we owe a lot of what we are today as the United States of America to the Covenanters. Presbyterians are governed by presbyters, elders, Episcopalians are governed by bishops under the king. When the king attempted to impose a new prayer book on the Scottish, King Charles I, a lady named Jenny Geddes, in a rage, threw her stool at the bishop. And here's a, here's a drawing of it. There's Jenny throwing the, bishop, the stool at the bishop. It's, this is really big in Scottish lore. If you're a Scotsman, you know all about this. because this is, And it started a riot of the stool. Give us the next picture. They've got the stool. There's the stool. It's in, the, it's in his church. Judy and I were in his church and visited. It's called St. Giles. It's right in Edinburgh and on the Royal Mile. Right, right. How many of you have been to Edinburgh? Some of you have. Right before, there's the Royal Mile. There's this road that leads up to the castle. And, St. Giles was on that church, and this is where John Knox preached, and there's the stool. At any rate, uh, that set off a riot. So Charles invaded when Jenny threw the stool and the people rioted. Charles says, enough, enough, I'm going to invade Scotland and impose Episcopalianism on them. And it ended up in a war, and Charles lost. Their Scotsman basically threw him out, so he has to call a parliament. The reason this is so important now in English history, this is forcing Charles to call a parliament to raise taxes. Charles says, I want to call a parliament. And parliament is, uh, is hopping mad that it's been almost 11 years without a parliament being called, and they know that Charles is trying to rule the country in opposition to Magna Carta. 
in opposition to the, the English settlement from Magna Carta, which shared authority between the king and the parliament. And so, uh, but he's now he's forced to call a parliament, and parliament assembles, and it's not pleasant. So there's been 10 years of preaching, 10 years of, of discussion of political theory throughout England. The, the, the English people are being affected strongly by the Bible, and the, all those five or six presuppositions that I mentioned to you that came with Puritanism and came with the resurgence of the Bible. And so, Charles calls a parliament. Parliament was Puritan. And remember, they were also very sympathetic to Presbyterianism. They're sympathized with the Scots. They like the Presbyterian form of government. They also do not like Episcopacy. Parliament was also angered because Charles had governed without them for 10 years. They were also angry by the Star Chamber and the persecution of the Puritans and the suppression of religious liberty. After three weeks, without getting permission to raise taxes, Charles dissolved Parliament. So he calls Parliament, I need money to wage this war, to impose Episcopacy on the Scottish. And Parliament says, are you kidding me? We don't like you. We like the Scottish. We like Presbyterianism. We think you need to leave the Scots alone. No money for you. And uh, of course, this did not make Charles happy. Meanwhile, the Scots crossed the border and invaded England. Charles sent a fourth Norse, a, a force of an army north, and the Scottish army overwhelmed the English in the area of Durham, where my daughter used to live. So from 1640 then, this is 1640, to 1660, 20 years, the long parliament begins to reign. Now normally, parliament would, the king would call parliament, and they'd sit for six weeks or eight weeks, they'd pass a bunch of laws, and they'd disband, and maybe a year or 18 months later, they'd, the king would call another parliament, and they'd sit for a short period of time and make laws, and they disband. But the tensions are so grievous in England between Parliament and the Crown, between the people who mostly support Parliament and the Crown, and this, there's, there's, a, there's an upheaval going on in culture now uh, in the area of political theory. And this upheaval is being caused by the resurgence of Scripture, of the Bible. So here are some of the implications of the Bible. So today, there's a big, I shouldn't digress on this much, but there's a big uh, brouhaha going over Christian nationalism. Have you heard about Christian nationalism? We've, now we've got this idea in our minds as Christians that Christians should just stay in their churches and worship God on Sundays and not be too involved politically or have too much control in area of political life. Well, Puritanism in 17th century England is suggesting to us that that's really not possible. And what's happening in our culture today, the collapse of our culture, the moral collapse of our culture, is mostly the result of an alien worldview which has penetrated our culture. A worldview is just a religious set of presuppositions, secularism. The Bible and biblical morality is, is gradually shrinking back in our culture, and as a result, secularism is rising, and what we're seeing in our culture is the fruits of secularism. Secularism is a religion. Here's the ultimate issue. There's no such thing as a religious vacuum. Somebody's religion will govern our culture, and the Puritans understood this. So it, better, it might as well be our religion, Christianity, because Christianity is going to provide the most freedom to the most people, the most religious tolerance for the most people, 
the most peace and prosperity for the most people, the most economic uh, uh, material gain for most people, it's going to be the best thing for most people. Uh, if, if we as Christians shrink back and let secularism take the lead in our culture, the result will be political suppression, economic uh, oh, a, a reduction in national wealth. Look at the debt today. Uh, I can't go off on this, but, but this is all the fruit of secularism. Liberal secularism, godlessness. At any rate, I'm way off my subject. The Puritans understood this, is what I'm trying to say. And the Puritans understood that the Bible has consequences beyond the congregation. It affects all of life, politics, science. This, the Royal Society is going to appear in London right in the middle of this whole thing, which was a fruit of the Puritan worldview. The Royal Society was the beginning of modern science, modern scientific method in London. And we'll get into more of that next week. At any rate, okay, the long parliament. Parliament sat. Charles had to call Parliament back again because <clears throat> the Scots have crossed the border. Thanks, Judy. The Scots have crossed the border, and this, uh, they've waged war on the king, and the king is losing, so he's forced to call Parliament back again. And when he does, Parliament says, basically, we're, we're in trouble. We're not. You can tell us. You can dismiss us, but we're not going to be dismissed. And that led to a civil war in England. The English Civil War started in 1642. We'll talk about that more next week, not today, but I do want to mention this, that during the English Civil Wars, Parliament called the Westminster Assembly. How many of you have heard of the Westminster Confession of Faith? It's probably the most influential Christian confession in existence today. And it was the Puritans that produced the Westminster Confession of Faith. It, they got all their uh, biblical scholars together, and for 10 years they sat in the West, what was called the Westminster Assembly, and they produced this beautiful confession of faith. Uh, so, I've, in my notes I have further reading. Uh, one of the best books to read is The Puritans by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Another great book is A Quest for Godliness by G.I. Packer. Uh, if you want to read about the relationship between Oliver Cromwell and Charles I, read The King and the, and the Gentleman by Derek Wilson. The Life and Letters of Oliver Cromwell by D. Aubin, the historian, is one of my favorite books. It's his letters to his wife and his children. He really loved the Lord. And a secular book on Cromwell called Cromwell, Lord Protector by Antonia Frazier is a hummer. And lastly, a short book on the Puritans, Worldly Saints by Leland Ryken. You can get a copy of my notes. Uh, put put the back up there. Yeah. And I think our notes are posted online here at the church, aren't they? Let's close the prayer. We're out of time. Next week, we'll talk about the English Civil Wars. We'll talk about John Bunyan. We'll talk about John Owen. We'll talk a lot about Oliver Cromwell, three great Christian men who've had a huge influence on the modern world. Father, this morning, we thank you again for history. We thank you for the Bible. Thank you for the implications of the Bible, Lord. We thank you that ideas have consequences. And the ideas that emanate from Scripture are bring the most peace, the most happiness, and the most prosperity to the most people. We're thankful for that, Lord. Thankful for your word. Thank you for the way you've moved in history. We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for your goodness. Amen.